0: Episode 240 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and I'm sitting on a lovely patio in some balmy weather. Here in Denver, Colorado, and across from me is Eric Clark and uh, co-founder. You co-founder with co-founder, your wife yep. of uh, Cohesion Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Eric.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here.
0: I, uh, I first met you years ago when doing a podcast at Odd Thirteen and mm-hmm. in, uh, in Lafayette, and you were production director at yep. that point for Odd Thirteen. Uh, of course, you've gone on and done some other things, consulted in the meantime with some other breweries. You've got a, a longer brewing history even than than that. We'll get into all of that right now. You are uh, we, here at Cohesion with this brewery, launched a Czech style lager brewery here mm-hmm. in Denver, Colorado, going all in on Czech style yep. lagers. Yeah, we're going to talk about creating uh, beers within that kind of uh, adherence to tradition, but also finding a creative voice within that. We're going to talk about uh, you know the difference between uh, styles based on ingredients and styles based on flavor and experience. We're going to talk about some of the technical strictures of creating Czech style loggers, how you've found that information, sourced ingredients, uh, some of the technical processes that you've employed in making these in a, you know, saying it authentic sounds like uh, it's such a dangerous term to use. Yes. I don't want to do that, but we can say reverent, a reverent way. I like that. Yeah. Um, You know, making them within this kind of, uh, you know, uh, process within this tradition, but also creating an identity for those loggers. We're going to talk about all of that, but first, what if you could chill your beer, with a more efficient chiller, the answer, GD Chiller's new microchannel condensers. GD's microchannel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with a lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Craft Brewing. Explore a whole universe of hop sensory with unique varieties like Cashmere, Comet, Triumph, El Dorado, and many more. Sourced directly from growers and processed at BSG's FSSC certified facility in Yakima to bring you only the very best hops from farmer to fermenter. For contracting, spot sales, and more info, reach out to them at Let's Talk Hops at bsgcraft.com. So Eric, let's talk about uh, your background in brewing. Like I said, cohesion here—you mm-hmm. all launched as a Czech style lager brewery, mm-hmm. but that's certainly not all that you've brewed. Uh, you know, again, you've <laughs> yeah. brewed everything from hazy IPA to yep. to wit beer and done all sorts of experiments across, uh, you know, across that time. Um, you know, talk to me about how that came about. You know, that kind of arc through brewing, and then how you ended up here in Denver launching uh, a brewery focused on Czech style lagers.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting uh, when I look back at where I've been brewing because I always I started in Vermont at uh, Zero Gravity Brewing. It was just a pub on uh, in, in one of the main streets in Burlington, Vermont, and that was such a great learning experience. It was it was my first brewing job. I'd just been home brewing, and um, Paul and Destiny over there, who are the still the brewers at that brewery, brewmaster and head brewer, and and they they definitely instilled in me from the beginning kind of a respect and reverence for traditional styles. And, and they were, they started that whole pub. Uh, they had 12 taps ish, maybe 16. And basically they had two towers. One tower was, um, their beer and the other tower was a traditional beer that they could source. And they would serve them side by side to show people like, okay, we have Schlenker La Hellas, and then we made a Rauch beer. Let's show you that we can, we think we can do this. We think we can make a great example of this style and show it side by side. Um, so, you know, I, it's kind of interesting starting from a brewery that is uh, in some ways bold enough to put, you know, their beer next sure, to a world-class sure. style. Um, but it was a super fascinating place to learn about beer and learn about brewing. And then obviously moving to a Belgian-only brewery uh, at Allagash for a little while, you know, that was, again, we were pretty restricted to a single cultural cultural representation of beer. And, and um, it definitely... Um, showed you some ways that you have to be creative within sort of a smaller box, but also how much attention to detail you can show to one style, to one beer, and really try and perfect and hone that craft. And um, I s- still think they make one of the best whipped beers in the world and one of the best beers. Unless you're
0: a World Beer Cup judge and you, <laughs> and you feel that it's only worth bronze. It's only a bronze. It's only That's a right. bronze, that of course. Was,
1: that was an interesting <laughs> wrinkle to it. But, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been fun kind of adhering to – so In some ways, more tradition, but obviously all those breweries and every brewer likes to experiment and likes to put twists on things. It's just not always the thing that gets the most publicity or gets most talked about, but brewers are always going to tinker. I mean, that's sure, part sure. of our, our nature. So even, you know, understanding that dynamic and how you can represent it um, is something that I I've been interested in. And then um, obviously at Odd 13, we got pretty deep into hazy IPAs and New sure. England IPAs. And again, that was, we brewed a lot of other styles there. Took all that Whitbeer experience and, uh, <laughs> That's and put right. it to work making. yeah, Still lots of wheat in there sure, for sure, sure. But yeah, I got, got into a bunch of different styles there, but uh, hazies were certainly the the focus. And again, it was, it was interesting um, exploring a singular style, but I kind of knew that uh, hops weren't really my thing. I, I just am not as enamored by the diversity of hops and uh to be honest i'm kind of happy that i don't have to follow that specific trend line as much anymore now that i i make pretty much loggers that are you know we we've used all czech hops uh, other than one wet hop beer we did um with a colorado hops but other than that it's all czech hops and it's it's kind of nice again it's um i kind of like this forced creativity that you get from and people have asked me other hop suppliers or the brewers like what well, would you use a german hop and it's like no, I, I want to use the Czech hops. Like I want to represent that tradition. And if you go to most Czech brewers, they'll use a variety of Czech hops. They don't, they haven't expanded into other, uh, other hop producing countries, especially if they're making lagers exclusively when they get into some of the newer school Czech brewers are making IPAs and making sure, some of the sure. styles that the Americans have invented, uh, if you will. But, um, if they're making lager, they're definitely focusing a lot on Czech hops and they're very proud of their hop production and and the hops that they grow in that country. So it's been fun, yeah, again kind of adhering Just to Just as American uh,
0: IPAs have been driven by American hops, you yeah, know, for that yeah. same kind of reason that there's that connection between that stylistic connection, you know, to the ingredients themselves and those things right. tend to grow together. I imagine as we look back at America and brewing over the last decade, we we will start looking at it through that trend yeah. and understand that the style was as much you know, it worked hand in hand with the ingredient availability. Yeah, that uh, you know the development and what people were interested in drove some of the agriculture, mm-hmm. and the agriculture in turn drove some of the interest in the style that they become. This symbiotic thing moving together. 100%. It's not one or the other, but it's both of those things together. And and all of these have happened at various points in the past in these other brewing traditions yep. in that same kind of way.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly the style of, of or the the story of the birth of Czech Lager. I mean, when when Pilsner was invented, that style in Pilsen, um, and it's an interesting anecdote that I like to share um and and we kind of talked about it a little bit before, but the um, you know, Czech lager producing, you know, we don't say Pilsner here. And if you're in the Czech Republic, they won't use the word Pilsner to describe a beer unless they're talking about Pilsner or Kel, because that's the original beer from Pilsen. Right, That's the beer that started that style. And it was super interesting. I, I learned in um, the Pilsner presentation at CBC a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, in 18, the mid 1800s, they were actually making primarily ales. And um, And in about 10 or 20 years, that tradition flipped on its head, and they went from making ales to making lagers. Once Pilsner became popular, everyone said, oh, yeah, I need to make that. And they... You know, the, I think the numbers he gave were about eighty to ninety percent would have been an ale fermentation, and then once Pilsner got popular in about twenty years, it was ninety-nine percent lager bottom fermented uh, yeast. So it's super. Imagine
0: interesting. being lager as the hype beer or <laughs> yeah. or you know yeah. this kind of Czech approach to Pilsner being being the hazy IPA of its time yep. and just taking over everything and supplanting all the ways that yep. the brewers did anything. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of amazing to think and, about
1: it. And that that story also started with exactly what you were getting at. Of the, It was the products around them, right? So this guy from Germany came over, brought a German bottom fermenting yeast, but used the malt grown in Arabia, the hops grown in Zatech, and made a new beer and uh, used some production processes he stole from the British maltsters and like some of the techniques he saw in some of the lager breweries in Vienna and kind of put it all together with what was available around him in the Czech Republic and made this style that now represents a vast majority of what's drunk in the world. Um, you know, it's been shifted and True, moved a sure. little bit, but pale lager um, was certainly a, a new thing when, when Pilsner came about. So it's, and it kind of has driven some of our, uh, you know, focus for, we, we wanted, I was hoping that someday we could get to a point to where we'd use all Colorado ingredients and use the things around us um, to keep it local and make a local representation of that. Uh, unfortunately the hop growers here have a really hard time with low alpha hops and some of the noble varietals um, but we have still sourced Colorado malts and worked with Troubadour malting up in Fort sure, Collins to sure. build that like slightly under modified malt to represent that and that's been it's been super fun to kind of try and I mean presented a whole new set of challenges to build a new malt a new base malt that is the base for all of our beers but uh, inspired by that looking around you, what do we have around us that we could use to make make this style of beer? Uh,
0: Let's dig into that a little bit more, but first like why, what, what talk to me about that inspiration to start a Czech lager (laughs) inspired brewery. Like here you are in Colorado. You could, you know, you, you were looking for that next chapter. Mm -hmm. You want to open your own brewery rather than working for other people's breweries, which is a natural instinct that lots of brewers have for that creative itch, but also to, you know, control that creative vision and, and business. Um, Why? I imagine you went through a few other ideas in the process before this one became the thing that you decided to hang your hat on.
1: Yeah. So I actually um, my wife and I met in Maine while I was working at Allagash. And I told her when I met her, uh, basically up until the day that I changed my mind that I was never going to start a brewery. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I I had seen, you know, how much work it was and (laughs) I did a little (laughs) bit. She went along with you for this. And then, yeah. yeah. I literally called her, uh, after, uh, CBC when it was in Denver in 2019. And on the way home, I was like, Hey, we're going to open a brewery. And she's like, you said we weren't opening a brewery. And I was like, well, I have an idea. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So that idea kind of came from, uh, we actually went on our honeymoon. We started out in Prague. Yeah. Um, and as any brewer, you know, you take a brewer anywhere, they're going to find some beer and obviously honeymoon <laughs> in
0: Prague. See now, now that's the romantic reason <laughs> Yeah, so kind, of, kind of bring back those echoes. Of, exactly. Of the, yeah. yeah.
1: So we, we kind of went there and, um, you know, I started obviously drinking all the beer that I could find in the couple of days we were there. And I realized that the beer there tasted different than what I saw as represented as Czech Pilsner, uh, here in the U S and I was like, you know, I'd, I'd always loved that style. I liked a little bit more bitterness. I liked um, the <clears throat> malt intensity, lower carb, a bunch of things about it. And I, but I was like, why, why does it taste so different here than what we have in the US when we talk about that style? Um, and I left that trip kind of, you know, just more curious than anything else. Like I didn't have an answer, uh, but I spent, you know, the next six months researching and delving into any, any podcast, any writing, any book that I could find, which, there's not really a ton of that, sure, um, sure. but I got enough to understand, you know, what the difference was and that it was something that um, I thought we could represent a little differently. So um, that was in the fall of 2018. And then basically over those next six months and all that researching, um, I kind of figured out, yeah, I think, I think there's something here. I think there's something that we could do here in Denver, a, a city that has, you know, people that have already paved the way for us, like Bierstadt and Hogshead, that have taken a single culture... Right. They tried to represent it. Customers already kind of understand that here in Denver. So why not? It's a very why not specialized beer city where yes,
0: you've got your German style lager yeah. brewery, and now you've got your Czech style lager brewery, yep. and
1: you've got your English, yeah. you know, uh,
0: brewer And yeah. uh, you know, but but it's that you have a nuanced beer crowd that also can dig into each of those things yep. and cares enough to uh, to support those and understands the difference themselves too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of you know uh, the combination of. Some of it was definitely wanting to put our own thumbprint on a company and have a company that right. um, you know, we, we wanted to set up with some some certain uh, foundational principles that we thought were important um, and we, my wife and I both wanted to uphold. And then having that also representing a culture that we loved and we thought people should know more about. I mean, this is, again, the, the style of beer, the type of beer that birthed what is the majority of what we drink in the world. And people don't know that much about it. They don't know much about these, uh, the Svetli Lezjak, the Svetli vyshepni Pivo, the Tmave Pivo, all these styles and the, that are more than just the you know, quote-unquote pilsner that uh, is made in the Czech Republic. So for us, it was um, trying to represent a culture um, authentically and then um, just to share that, that joy that we found in drinking those beers with people here in Denver. So, um, and, and for me as a brewer, it was nice to kind of focus a little bit um, you know, hops are, hops feel so expansive still to me. It feels so right. You can't wrap your hands around all of the hop knowledge in this world. It just feels impossible. And that's not to mention getting into the malt of IPAs and the yeast used for IPAs and all those things. And so kind of limiting myself felt more comfortable. It felt like, okay, yeah, I have a smaller box to work in, but I want to go deep in this box. I want to really explore these techniques and these styles. Um,
0: there's lots of great people doing great work with Hoppy Beers, too.
1: Oh, you yeah. know, fantastic yeah. stuff.
0: And here in Colorado and, of course, yes. all, all yes. across the United States and yeah. now around the world. Um, yeah, but finding a way to make a mark in something different, but, yeah, work with that is uh, – it's an interesting creative challenge. I want to talk to you about how you set about doing that, like how you then you envisioned what those beers were going to be that you made, and then how you went about creating or finding ingredients to do sure. that. Uh, before we do that, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard is partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment to get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today. Head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also Arrived, mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's Arrived, A-R-R yved.com forward slash cbb a different kind of pos has arrived so eric you all decide to start this business and uh, you know limit yourself to brewing czech style loggers mm-hmm. um, but you also don't want to just create a facsimile of those things that already exist. You're, you know, it's not, uh, you're not a cover band, you know, per right, se, right. you're trying to play within a genre, but you're not trying to, you know, sing the exact same songs and play yep. the exact same notes. Um, you know, talk to me about that next step in the creative process where you, you know, how did you start to formulate what those, those core pillars of, of beers are going to be? And also, you know, what the experience was going to feel like.
1: Yeah. So the, yeah, I mean, the experience is definitely a big, part of what we saw the czech pub culture is is very unique Um, and that was certainly drove a lot of what we did here but for me from the beer side it was kind of twofold right there's this idea that and even if you look at the bjpc style bjcp styles uh i think it was the 2012 version there was one beer under czech czech beer right there was one that was it it was czech pilsner it wasn't even czech pale lager i think um, it might have been pale lager, but I know they changed that or it, it says that now. Um, and that was something I noticed in researching and going there. Um, there's a couple authors. So, uh, Ron Pattinson, who's sure, a sure. old, uh, a British beer writer. And then Evan rail have, you know, been writing a lot sure. and that was there. They gave me a ton of information just on their websites and, and the, for those of
0: you following at home, in the uh, the latest lager issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, it's a great article by Evan Rail yes. on uh, you know brewing Czech logger the Czech yeah, way, yeah. and uh, yeah. So if you are not a subscriber, go subscribe right now and get that uh, get that issue into your hands.
1: Yeah, that was that was a good that was definitely a good one. They talked to one of my my favorite brewers in Czech too, um, uh, Hostamica, people of hostamita, but so that was something like digging into their. Um, history living there. Both of them, I think, had lived in Czech for a little while and experienced that culture. Evan's been there for almost yeah, 30 years yeah. now. Um, and seeing them talk about the styles and the range of styles that the Czechs actually produce um, that I still talk about. We give a, you know trainings to all of our bartenders, and one of the things I show them is that when Ron Pattinson built this table, if you look at the strength of beer and you look at the color, so uh, pale, half dark, and dark, pale, amber, dark, uh, and then strength, and you build a table with those uh, on each axis. The Czechs actually fill that table more than the Germans, the Swiss, and the Austrians, mostly in the low ABV range. Right. The Czechs really embrace this low ABV range and do it a lot more than these other very uh, Euro- you know, central European lager-producing countries do. They just um, tend to be
0: more pale in general.
1: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and just just lighter ABV too. So like the you know the Germans don't have a lot of styles, a lot of representation in the you know, two and a half to three and a half ABV range. And the Czechs drink a lot of that beer. Um, So it was looking at those and they drink amber versions of that. They drink dark versions of that. And then they also do that all throughout the, the, the alcohol strength. So looking at like the, the diversity of styles that we could offer, you know, it was almost more than again, people knew. And it was something I knew I wanted to Share with people. So right now, you know, we have pale lagers on draft that are an eight play-doh, which is three percent, a ten play-doh, which is uh, three, eight percent, a twelve play-doh that's uh four percent, and those are or four point eight percent. And those are all different beers. Like they they do come across differently, but they also allow for different uh ABV strengths. If someone, you know, really doesn't want to have a strong beer, a three percent option is is great. And as uh, the Czechs drink the most per capita in the world by quite a bit. And part of the reason they do that is because they're drinking mostly 4% right. four, four percent beer. Um, so that, you know, understanding that there was a lot of different styles to represent was something that was interesting to me. And again, it, it still narrowed it down, but there was more than just the one style that we knew sure, and, sure. and was very popular here in the US. Um, and then it was about, um, you know, kind of creating connections in terms of um, bringing that drinking experience here as well. So, I mean, the the name Cohesion was all about bringing people together over beer, right? Bringing dif- different views and different people and and together over a beer. And that's really what the Czech pubs are for. It's it's such a strong third space in that country that during the pandemic, you know, when bars were closed, they yeah. dropped quite a bit in beer consumption uh, because people just, they didn't drink because... Didn't replace it with packaged yep. beer, right? Yep. Yeah, and you saw a lot of that just loss of consumption because you couldn't go to the pubs. And it's interesting, you know, where in the U S maybe that consumption didn't, it maybe increased, uh, because we still wanted to just be drinking alcohol. <laughs> yeah, right. The, the checks were like, Oh, I can't drink this at a pub. Like, no, I'm just not going to have beer. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, this idea of bringing up space where, uh, the the beer is what you're talking over, not talking about was kind of important to us. Sure. And I, I say all the time, I, I could talk about this beer for 30 seconds or 30 minutes, and I can get into the details that make it what it is, but we also don't have to. We can. It can be a place where people come and say, oh, yeah, tastes good. And then you start talking about your life or your day or whatever subject you want to talk about. And that kind of welcoming atmosphere and, and just third space, that space where people, it's not their work, it's not their home. But they they spend time with others sure. in the community was really uh, remarkable to me in in the Czech beer world and it's something that you know in the craft beer world we can get so wrapped up in everything that is happening in that beer um, and I I kind of appreciated taking a step back from that in the in the Czech beer pubs and um wanted to bring some of that here so
0: no, I think you know I, I think that's a fantastic thing to aspire to to make beers that can either be that experience where you can dissect them and focus on the beer itself um but I think you're you're right American uh beer culture has maybe grown a little too studious in its uh <laughs> note taking right, and uh right. evaluative thing uh thinking about that as the process of of pleasure rather than you know that kind of social aspect. You know, having said that, we probably wouldn't be having conversations right. <laughs> on this podcast right now in the kind of depth that we do yeah, yeah. if people didn't approach it that way. Um, you know. Anyway, we'll we'll have a sixty minute long conversation <laughs> about all the details <laughs> right, of this, and, right. uh, and that's what we're into now. But let's talk about that kind of you know that that. You know, you've got the experience idea down, yeah, and the way that you serve beer here using mm-hmm. side pool faucets, using yeah. chilled glasses that yep. soak in water, you know, fee, you know, all serves that idea of Czech pub yeah. and uh, a way that would feel common uh, if someone were visiting from Czech and were mm-hmm. drinking a beer. Yeah. You yeah. know, but it also creates a nice little drama and yep. uh, spectacle to service yes right you know whereas Bierstadt has its slow pour yeah. which it creates yeah. its own you know, kind of aesthetic approach um you know with belgian brewers we were just there in february you know they take a very uh you know dramatic approach to mm-hmm. beer service using proper glassware you know pouring properly making sure there's the, the, right sp- amount the of
1: spinning like, of the glass um, with lambic where they coat the whole sure, glass sure
0: like, yeah you know and and the, those rituals aren't I, they're not just for show. Right. They also set you. They create a seriousness mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um. And, you know, in a seriousness, at least an intention in the minds of, of people. You know, you know that the person serving this to you is doing so in the way that they intend to do it, yeah. and it's not just somebody pouring some beer out yeah. of a tap that you don't know how it's taken care of and yep. they're throwing it into a shaker pint yeah. and splashing it across the bar to you. You know, mm-hmm. like there's this is a thoughtful product, you yeah. know, produced care. Anyway, you've got all of that going on here on the service side, mm-hmm. but I want to let's talk about the beer itself. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, you know, and I don't know where you want to start. What yeah. will you consider that kind of beer that's the foundation and, and how did you go about designing that beer? Sure.
1: So we we kind of started with a number of principles that I saw in the Czech brewing tradition, as kind of consistently used, maybe not every person, and there's definitely newer breweries that are changing some of these techniques. But I have a number of techniques that I saw as traditional, which I I I tend to say, you know, you you talked about that that word authentic. Uh, I tend to say traditional because I'm trying to use the, sure. the older techniques, and um, but I like I, I use that word when talking about our beer um, and the way that we do it. So some of the Techniques that I kind of saw and things that I really wanted to put in place here after doing all that research, Um, so RO water was a big one. So obviously pills and water, very soft water. Um, You see it if you look at water profiles comparatively. Um, They, they, I've heard. Brewers in Czech talk about that the sandstone that is under the, the, you know, the soil is filtering the water for 200 years or something like that, right? They, they <laughs> sure, talk- <laughs> sure. That's, that's their romantic self. Exactly. I get it, I get so it. it's, it's you know, very, very soft water. So yeah. um, Denver has variable water. Um, A low it,
0: mineral content <clears throat> in general. Yeah
1: withdraws from three different sources and they don't tell you when they switch uh, <laughs> mineral content can be different okay so reducing that mineral content down to uh, you know very low levels and adding a very small amount back to mimic that water profile was important I think that was you know I've learned a lot especially uh, through hazy IPA brewing about sure. the impact that water chemistry can have on beer and so I knew I had to start there
0: um, and what does that tend to look like then for you in terms of you know total dissolved solids mm-hmm. and then when what kind of minerals do you focus on?
1: So the way that we I do it here is um, we measure about 140 to 150 ppm in, and then about 3 ppm out of total hardness. Um, so generally I just run a calculation and I try and add back enough of the uh, hard water to get up to about 15 ppm of total hardness. Hmm. So that's that's kind of how we approach it um, in adding back a little bit of minerals. I, I find sure. that to be easier than trying to dose out and yeah, buy. Yeah, for sure. Why, why
0: pay for something if it... Yeah. You know, uh,
1: so we, so we generally filter, you know, 95% and then add just a little percent back sure. based on how much water is in my hot liquor tank and cold liquor tank and so on. But, um, so we did, but we have a very small, uh, RO filter, but it, and it, total it, hardness
0: is the, the metric that you use mm-hmm. then.
1: Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's what the, the unit that we bought, it just spits out total hardness on the, on the display. So that's kind of what we're what we're using. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's it, I think it is representative of the total hardness that you'd get. Um, but some of the numbers that I've seen from some reports run by local labs are are different. Um, but I know that we're removing quite a bit of it and then and then adding back just a hair to get up to that uh hardness that would match kind of the the check water profile. Um but then the malt was huge uh for us you know we we looked at the Uh, Floor malted malt in Czech, and a lot of brewers there you know, in that era, all brewers really, wherever you were, they were making or malting a lot of their own malt. Um, So floor malting was the predominant technique used before a lot of the modernization and technology we have today. Uh, The Czechs have kind of stuck with it, um, and you'll see that through a variety of processes, whether it's because of occupations in the 20th century and they just couldn't develop technology or they're stubborn or they don't like to change. All of those things, I think, play play a role in the fact that they've embraced a lot of techniques that other brewing traditions have sort of just moved beyond because of inefficiencies or, you know, an easier way maybe. Um, But the Czechs still predominantly floor malt um, their malt. And so, again, we wanted to support local and we worked with Troubadour to build that uh, under-modified malt. So they're not floor malting, uh, but they did build us kind of a malting schedule that is slightly under-modified. And that plays into what I think is one of the big... Factors of Czech brewing. And I've heard um, from Vaclav Berka, who's that brewmaster emeritus in Pilsner Raquel. We asked him when I was there about a month ago, you know, or someone on our tour asked him, can you make Czech lager without decoction? And he said, no, (laughs) Uh, absolutely not. He was very definitive about it. And um, I tend to agree with him. I think that when you talk to brewers, and Evan Rail has given me an anecdote of. Um, there's brewing technical high schools in Prague, right? So instead of going to regular high school, you could go to a high school where you learn how to brew and that's going to be your profession. Just like a technical school here. Best high school ever. uh, Seriously. I I wish we had, I mean, they have enough brewers that they need it, but, uh, yeah, definitely not something. We also have
0: these crazy laws that say you can't drink alcohol until you're 21.
1: Right. Right. So there's that. Such crap. There's that hurdle too. Uh, yeah. So he told me, you know, the brewers there, they learn decoction first. That's actually, they learn decoction and then they learn this other technique called single infusion. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very opposite yeah, of yeah. how we, the order that we learn things here. And decoction is a very important part of the lager production. Um, again, it's, it's inefficient. It uses a ton of power, it, uh, heat. It takes a long time. It's not the easiest way to brew beer, but they have stuck with it. And they really do believe that it uh, brings an impact to the beer that, and I, I share that belief. I think that it's something, you know, the decoction process of boiling those grains, actually having the grains and the sugars inside the grains exposed to that heat does produce some, some melanoidin reactions, yeah. some caramelization that you just can't get any other way. Um, and so we embrace that here with all of our beers. Uh, we do single, double, and triple decoction.
0: And I guess we should back up. Undermodified means that they are malting in such a way that the uh, the— there's not as much immediate enzymatic activity within produced sure. by the malt itself. Uh, you know,
1: the, the enzymatic activity is, is actually uh, in levels. It's more the, the protein levels that okay. they're measuring and then some of the uh, potential sugar conversion, right. So when you look at the potential for how much sugar we could draw out of this grain, um, it's not quite as high as a more modified malt that you might find from you know, BSG or the, some, sure. some of the more modern malters. The
0: modification process is something that they do in the malting process, Correct. and it's not the, not in the barley variety itself. Correct.
1: Yep, they, they have that same barley variety, um, which is uh, Genie is the variety that's grown here sure. mostly in Colorado, um, and they make a fully modified Pilsner malt. The, they call their Pevich. Right, right. And then for us, they make a slightly under-modified Pilsner malt called Super Pevich. So we we use that malt as our base malt. It's available to other brewers, um, but we kind of developed that that together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they they're measuring more of the modification in the the protein conversion levels. Um, that's kind of the standard okay. uh, measurement: the colback index, and then some of the like fan levels, the so protein levels, and then the total extract you can get from that. So it's slightly less uh, efficient. Um, you know, most sure. brewers would look at that and say, "Why would I spend more money for a craft malt?" that's not as efficient. Uh, but for us, you know, we're driven by wanting to stick to that tradition and stick to that process and represent the, the beer culture. So it's, I mean, I don't mind using an extra 20 pounds of malt, uh, you know, 30 pounds of malt, whatever it takes to make, to make that happen. Um, so, and you've brewed them both ways, you know, so you,
0: mm-hmm. you've clearly, you're throwing your hat into the, the decoction realm 100, 100%. because, you know, so from a sensory perspective, having, you know, brewed some of these recipes again, like I imagine you've brewed it with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Mo- fully modified contemporary mm-hmm. malt yeah. and under modified malt with a decoction yeah. process. What, what is, uh, how would you, from a sensory perspective,
1: sure. describe the difference? Um, So I think there's uh, a a mouthfeel difference, first of all. I think you get this um, depth of uh, mouthfeel that just doesn't exist. Uh, Some of that is also yeast selection. So there is Czech yeast are slightly less attenuative than a German yeast, Mm -hmm. um, which is predominantly, at least what I've seen here brewed in the U.S., is more German-style lagers uh, or people using German yeast, that 3740, I think, being a pretty popular one. Um, And that, so we... 3470. <laughs> 347. Yeah, I, I use it so much I know it's exactly okay. what it's it okay. is. Yeah. <laughs> I know the numbers. I I've literally never used that yeast, so I don't I don't even know which one it is. But um yeah, so that, that yeast definitely dries beer out a little more. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think the residual sugar is is part of it. Um but I do think there's a depth of grain flavor and a mouthfeel that you get from that. And then uh, especially with a, a triple decoction, and it's it's a little less um accented than it might have been, you know, when these beers were first made. There's a few factors, something like direct fire kettles, copper kettles, when you're scorching those grains, you know, that was definitely, I think it had more impact than a steam heat does now. Of course. Um, But I do think we get some, you know, I see color change when I move a decoction from my boiling vessel over to my louder ton. I see a a new color come into the louder ton. So I see a development of color. I know that there is some uh, grain uh, flavors that are being developed through those Maillard reactions happening. So I think you get, you know, it's, it doesn't come through, it doesn't taste like a caramel beer, it doesn't taste like uh, a heavily caramelized beer right. from the malt profile, but you do get a little bit of depth of grain flavor. You start to uh, toast your bread, right? Same exact reactions mm-hmm. used for toasting bread. You start to toast some of those grains a little bit. And you just draw out more complex grain flavors. So
0: we, uh, for those that want to follow up on more on this, uh, we've got a class coming up on our all access video platform with, uh, Hagen and Bill from dovetail. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Hagen shared a, a video that he's taken. And when you mentioned that color change of watching that coming through the sight glass, yeah. coming back uh, out of that kettle and just, you can very clearly oh, see yeah. the the color dis- uh, difference there. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, all these different decoction styles and mm-hmm. we'll walk through how to do it. Um, you know, but I think it's, it's fun and interesting to think about what that actually contributes. Certainly there's lots of arguments on both sides, whether, you know, whether that's but, you know, so you've got this then, uh, you know, your decoction process, Mm -hmm. what, what makes you choose between a single double and a triple decoction?
1: Yeah. So it's about the, the end beer that I want to make. So that's part of the recipe when I'm thinking about what beer I want to drink, Mm -hmm. it's kind of in enveloped in that process. And, Hagen had a great anecdote that I actually heard about decoction uh, when I visited Dovetail a while back. He he likened it to uh, a, a gas pedal, right? And single decoction is you're a little bit down. Double decoction is halfway down, and triple decoction is to the floor. You know, it's yeah. not that dramatic, um, but it's this it's this depth of grain flavor. So for us, it's um, there's some some amount that's adherence to tradition and some amount that is the the beer we want to build. So. Uh, the 12 degree that we make, which is the Svetli Le Jacques, which is the style that Pilsner Urquell is in, um, and, uh, Boudoir as well. And that's most brewers, most prominent, uh, style, uh, Pilsner Urquell is triple decocted, um, in kind of, um, respect for that beer, not respect, sure. uh, admiration for that beer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mimic that particular, uh, process. And so we triple decoct our 12 degree, um, the majority of brewers that we've talked to double decoct their 12 degrees um and double decoction is kind of the standard um from what i've who i've talked to um so for other beers we do uh double decoction process i like to do double decoction specifically for dark beers um and then we also extend the actual decoction boil time on the dark beers um that's something that an anecdote i think i picked up from evan one of his writings uh that the dark beers are actually decocted maybe 30 minutes instead of 15 or 20 mm. minutes. Um, so we do we do that for those beers. And then, uh, so like our 10 degree, our Desitka, the Svetlevi Shepny Pivo, the pale draft beer, um, which is supposed to be the lighter version. It's supposed to be the easier drinking one, less things going on. We single decoct that beer, right? Yeah. And that's because I don't want that intensity of grain sure, flavor. Sure. I want it to be a little lighter, a little bit easier drinking. Um, and then, but then sometimes we flip that on its head. So like our 8 degree, which is um you know the the lowest abv one we have i started to get worried about okay now we're dropping down to three percent abv do i need to have more decoctions to make it more flavor so i triple decocted that beer um so it's and and that was more of an experiment than a you know i know where this is going to end up but um it's it's a part of the recipe and the part of intensity of, of grain flavor that we want to convey per the beer um so, yeah, yeah
0: I want to talk about this in dark beers especially because it is something that, that came up that uh, yeah. you know naturally when you're decocting especially when you start dealing with darker malts mm-hmm. then you can get some nasty flavors yep. if you are doing it you know as a uh, you know in specific ways and so there's some strategies that the Czech Brewers tend to use to get better results out of that decoction before we do that from the rotatable pickup tube on rogue Brewings pilot brewhouse to the integrated hop backs on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. So let's talk about that approach yeah. to uh you know to decoction. Clearly mm-hmm. you want to You tend to want to avoid decocting some of the darker malts as you do that to avoid some of the more astringent flavors. Mm -hmm. How does that look then in your mashing process?
1: Yeah, so we um, basically, uh, we we build also uh, all of our uh, roasted malts and cara malts with Troubadour as well. So they have a Mm. roaster and we can... right. Basically, work with them and say, "Hey, I want this malt of this kind," and and they can make it. It's incredible. It's, it's a whole great. bunch of
0: expensive malt for a uh, small logger. <laughs> That's brew. right.
1: Uh, yeah, but it's 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 fun and it's. Yeah. Uh, I think they they treat it well. So uh, basically, we work with them, and uh, anything about over a hundred bond for me, um, I don't decoct. Yeah. Um, so I'll just add it into the louder ton um, after I finish my decoction steps, and basically, um, just I call it top dressing. So just. Throw the malt on top, and yeah. then Vorloff and sparge over that malt. Um, you know, there's no sugar I need from that malt. Right, it's all color, it's just and there for color, yeah. color, and, and some flavor. So, uh, steeping those grains like you would a tea gets you that effect, mm. and uh, then you can avoid boiling them. Um, it also helps with filtration. Sometimes um, I picked it up from Allagash, actually because uh, they used to make. I don't think they make that stout anymore. The Belgian stout, right, um, right. But we were getting so many stuck mashes because those. Kernels are, are uh, smaller, and when you mill them, they crack into even smaller particles, and that can clog the the holes in your louder ton. Mm. So we were seeing stuck mashes more often when we would actually mill, and that was just single infusion, but when we would mill that malt and add it all together than if we just added it on top and kind of sparged over it. Um, so I, I kind of learned that technique while I was brewing there and have carried that through basically all, sure. the, all the way and it, it, it works well for decoctions too to not yeah boil that that dark grain
0: are there any other uh, tricks to the decoctions that you've discovered as you've been uh, employing these in your brewing here at Cohesion
1: um I'm I'm still I'm still trying to figure out some of it I guess is uh, uh the <laughs> sure sure the part that's been the hardest I think is the temperature adjustments yeah. um so when you pull off a portion to boil and you're going to add that portion back to your main mash, uh, how much are you going to actually raise the temperature? Um, it's particularly difficult in Colorado. There are a lot of books, uh, German books and and some Czech that haven't really been translated as much that work through decoction calculations. Um, the hard part has been that uh, most places boil at 212 and we boil at 202. <laughs> so sure, sure. I'm boiling at a different temperature. Uh, so I've had to and I'm still learning this brew house. Uh, I have, I think, I think I've done 25 batches at this point. So I'm still not very deep in sure, this brew house. Sure. So learning how much malt or how much mash I need to boil to hit certain temperature steps is something we're still dialing in, uh, starting to get a lot better. But that's something that I think is uh, when people are starting to decoct to pay attention to uh, because you can overshoot a temperature range by quite a bit and miss the entire point of you know, that decoction step right. um, and just blow past, you know, if you're trying to get a protein rest at a certain temperature range and you add too much boiled mash back to the main mash, you're just going to blow right by that and go right into sacrification. And so you're going to miss a conversion step that right. that you wanted to have and potentially need to reduce the number of decoctions, which would change a recipe. So that, that's that been one of the hurdles, I think, and in, in just trying to um i guess undershoot especially if you have the capability to heat again to move to another step has Mm -hmm. been something that that i've done just to help make sure i'm hitting all my temperature steps
0: so then uh, you know how would you do that i mean you you are you reducing the temperature we have jackets
1: on the louder ton so once i so once i move it back once I've added all the mash together, I can then use the jackets to just step that into the temperature range. But you can't, it's hard to go back, right? right. Going, going colder is really difficult, but we have a lot of capability to heat things. Sure. So then I, then I have to measure the temperature of the whole mash. So I right. pulled off that uh, roughly a third most times. Sometimes it's up to half for us. Yeah. Um, and then I've added it back and I start mixing it together. And that's when I can check that temperature of the, the next step. So to so see where we've, where we've gotten into. Um,
0: but you can't change the temperature because it's coming out as boiling. And so right. are you just changing speed? the speed? I change the amount. The amount imma- so, okay. so
1: how much of the mash I boil. So we have load sensors on our kettle, yeah. so I can measure by weight how many I'm sorry that I'm I'm <laughs> dumb about this. I'm yeah. No, I, I'm it's it's a complicated <laughs> yeah, process yeah. that I've spent a lot of time right. looking at. So yeah, we so we have load sensors on the on both the kettle and then the louder ton, which yeah. isn't really the best vessel for Uh, mash mixing but uh, we're working with it like a lot of (laughs) brewers are Um, and so I can measure so I'd say I pull off you know three barrels of a 12 barrel mash I boil that and i move it back over and it's i don't hit the temperature i need so then next time i'll pull off four barrels right. boil that and move it over so you the temperature is consistent you're absolutely right, right. it's the amount it's the vo- of volume, the yeah. volume of mash the volume of heat that you have contained in that mash that you're moving back to then add so i've had to adjust I mean, yeah. that based on temperatures and that's why this
0: couldn't really be you know a recipe thing because it depends on your machinery yeah. and <laughs> you know the volume of the mm-hmm. mash overall you know the the even I imagine the way that the ports might push yeah. stuff back yep. in yep. how and where it does that can all impact all of these things. And just because yeah. the process that works for you and the equipment that you have. Yep. And, Ev- that.
1: and Evan has said multiple times, like that's one of the things that those, those Czech high school brewers are mm-hmm. that they learn is these uh, decoction calculations, because right. it's, it is important. And if sure. you miss steps, it can be you know detrimental to the, the end product. So they have to learn these calculations. Um, I, I haven't learned them well enough myself, I guess yet to fully, you know, nail it every time, but we're, we're, we're getting it pretty dialed in at this point.
0: Uh, well, it's a good thing that you're only brewing a few different, you know, beers <laughs> so that you get to brew them enough times. I it mean, helps. Yeah. It helps that, a lot. <laughs> that's yeah. That is the magic of this. Um, you know, after that, uh, you know, the kind of mash step, yeah. what, what's the next step of brewing look like for your, for your
1: yeah, yeah. So the next thing that I think is kind of, again, unique to Czech culture, Czech brewing culture, but is it's not, this is definitely not ubiquitous. It's not everywhere. And it's something that um, modern brewers are not doing as much. And for good reason, uh, is the open fermentation. So we do open fermentation really? here. Okay. Um, everything is open fermented. Um, we do have a HEPA filtered positive pressure room. Um, most of the ones in the Czech Republic are actually also cooled. Um, ours is not. Um, to mimic kind of fermenting in a cellar. So a lot of times, traditionally, they would have fermented in the cellar. When you visit Pilsner or Kell and see their traditional process, the fermentation begins in the cellar. So at about six degrees Celsius, which I think is like 42 Fahrenheit. Um, And so they're starting a a fermentation, you know, in a cellar at a cold temperature. Um, That open fermentation, you know, now people are drifting away from it, obviously, for contamination concerns. Um, a lot of the traditional breweries uh, adopted pasteurization pretty early. Sure. And so they've been able to combat that. So they're not as really concerned about what's happening before because they're going to pasteurize. Mm-hmm. So newer brewers in Czech, what I've seen is that they start to do fermentation in cylindrical conicals. They look different than the ones here. They're a much shallower cone. Mm. Um, I'm not really sure <laughs> exactly sure, wh- sure. why, but it's just something I've noticed. Um, but they keep everything, you know, in in stainless and in closed containers. Um, which is certainly more consistent with what you see here in the U.S. And, sure, uh, allows for you know a sanitation process that's a little bit more secure and and then also keeping you know things out of that out of that beer. So for us, it's part of why you know we're not uh, doing a ton of packaging and a ton of distribution because um, I don't I don't think there's anything in these beers. I've had some of them tested and they're fine, but the risk is there. Um, yeah, and it's certainly riskier than having a closed top tank. Um, but I do think open fermentation provides. Um, a little bit different flavor profile, you know, stress on the yeast. Yeah. Once we get into fermentation, yeast stress is something uh, we're trying to avoid. Sure, I think was sure. something that Czech brewers uh, sort of also had throughout their process. Uh, open fermentation, removing that little bit of pressure does create different flavors and um, does create different profiles of yeast. Um,
0: it's a reason that folks like Sean Ram uh, and Eric Toft and then... Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, Anchor, you know, has humongous open fermenters. I remember visiting there a number of years yeah. ago, and uh, it was such a cool thing to see that scale of open fermentation. <laughs> and they're wearing head to toe, like yeah. clean suits and yeah.
1: everything. I mean, that's that's the level you have to take at that sure. size. Uh, um, and I don't know if they're pasteurizing or not, but if you don't want to pasteurize, that's what you would have to do at that size to yeah. make it work. But it, again,
0: they, they're like, like you, they're positive pressure. So there's, they're pushing air out. Air is not right. coming in through the doors. Right. Yeah. They are. There, it's a filtered air going in. And, and, you know, of course, even like Russian river, at, yep, yep. Uh, the new brewery, uh, they put in open top fermenters yeah, 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 and man, some, even some of the ales through those open top fermenters are, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful I,
1: thing. I do think it's a different profile and I've, I've talked to some other brewers that, that. Do that as well. and Asheville has yeah. some open top. Yeah. Fermenters I've seen in those their, uh,
0: their pilot brewery. It's yeah. yeah it's,
1: and it's, it's fun for people to see, you know, we're, we're going to start doing tours pretty soon and kind of showing people the brewery and talking yeah. through some of these steps and, it's something different you know it is something yeah. different for people to see and it's part of the challenge that i've given myself still working in the box right like okay we're in this box we're doing a very what could be described as simple beer, but I have this process that I have to figure out and make sure it works. Like open fermentation is something unique and new to me that I didn't have a ton of experience with. Um, how would,
0: Sensorially, well, you know, how would you again, describe, uh, you know, what that beer tastes mm-hmm. like with a, that kind of open fermentation? Sure. You mentioned yeast stress. Yep. Certainly that, uh, you know, that impacts it, but that, is that a performance thing? Is that a mm-hmm. flavor piece? What kind of flavors are we talking about there?
1: Yeah. So if you look at um, uh, like, um, uh, What's the the Belgian one that's also open fermented? Um, Yvonne de Bates Brewery. He, he has... Delos-Sennes. De th- has open fermenters. And I think in Belgian yeast, you see it's a little bit more... It's easier to pull it out because it's a higher ester profile. Um, very nice. The Taris Bulba shirt I'm coming wearing, out. I'm wearing a
0: Taris Bulba t-shirt that <laughs> yeah. uh, that
1: Yvonne gave me uh, when we were over there. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah, so that... Um, that higher yeast or ester profile is certainly Belgian yeasts show that a lot more. They have more esters to show. The lager yeast don't have that as much ester to show, but I do think you get a slightly uh, stronger ester profile out of it. Again, it's minuscule differences, but the difference is there. And that's kind of, you know, we're, we're stacking so many what can be small differences to make a big end difference. And I I've, again, I kind of like that approach of this style of brewing where, these little changes start to matter as you stack them up quite a bit.
0: That sounds like something that uh, Ashley Bierstadt uh, <laughs> said to me
1: at one point. We were on the podcast.
0: <laughs> it's not one thing. It's it's all yeah, hundred things. Right, all, all right together. Sure, yeah, sure.
1: So we. So I think uh, a little bit a little bit easier uh, fermentation allows for more more of the pleasant. Uh, profiles from the yeast to come through. But it's not, it's not super strong. And again, it's not something that like uh, m- maybe most people would pick up if you just change that one variable, but it's yeah. one of many variables that um, also was, you know, for me, it was being traditional, doing these processes that I see that are new and interesting to me. And I want to explore myself and I see Czech brewers mm-hmm. doing. Um, so mm-hmm. adhering to that kind of tradition of what uh, a representation of that, that beer was. But again, most, That's not something that if you built a brewery in Czech today, I think it would likely not have open fermentation. And more of the modern breweries um, don't have that. Some of them do. Hostamitsa, which is in your magazine here, talking about dark loggers, they do open fermentation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, not not everyone does that now. Um, Older breweries, breweries that were built, you know, as early as the 1300s, as some of them were, yeah, yeah. they're doing open fermentation still. Sure, <laughs> sure.
0: It's a funny one, you know, I have a, my
1: college uh, degree was in religious studies and I oh, intended yeah. to,
0: to go into that and studied the sociology of religion. And I always, when I think about this, I think about, you know, this one, this, this tendency of religions and there, there was that point where the closer you are to the center of religion, the less practice you have to engage in to prove that you are an adherent of that. Yeah. And so, you know, if you are, Jewish and live in Israel, it's the practice is less important. You're just, you're Jewish. You know, right, like right. You, you know if you were Mormon and you live in Salt <laughs> exactly, Lake City, yeah. the Mormons in Salt Lake City tend to be less regimented about some mm-hmm. of their behaviors. Right. Um, yeah, you know, you've got plenty of Mormons that will drink caffeine or drink alcohol sure, and there's sure. still Mormons, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the further away you get from that, the more that that behavior needs to very clearly define your difference totally. from the general population and i think that uh, well it's the same kind of thing with brewing when mm-hmm. you are a czech lager yeah. brewer in czech like you're just brewing you're good you don't have to exactly. prove anything you can do it however yeah. you want to do it yeah. and there's this much wide there's this very wide range of the way you do that and some of those things the further you get from that center of it you know you you start you pick certain things yeah. and certain behaviors yeah. out and uh, and that becomes more defining. I think of that's that.
1: a, yeah, it's a great analogy. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a yeah, big part of how we approach it is trying to represent it as authentically as we can and to traditions is something that we have to do because I'm not in Czech. I can't, you know, <laughs> sure, I can't sure. tweak these little things and and change variables to the beer and still be, yeah, it's still Czech lager because I'm in the Czech Republic. Right, right.
0: <laughs> but all of these things are dynamic and what we view as Czech lager may be different a hundred years from now, just totally. because, you know, like you said at the top, what uh, what is being brewed in Czech now is different than what it was 120 oh, years ago.
1: hundred percent. And
0: when we go through that kind of time, all again, it's all dynamic and it's all will continue to yeah. be subject to change. Nonetheless, let's, uh, we didn't talk about hops. Um, yeah. You know, you source all your hops, of course, from Czech.
1: Yep. Um, so we're also, we're using all uh, whole cone hops, or mostly whole cone hops at this point. Oh, so really? That okay. Was, no pellets or uh, very minimal pellets. We're starting to use pellets more for bittering. Okay. Um, but the the whole cone piece was actually from uh, my, one of my best friends, Brandon, who owns Primitive Beer up in Longmont. He has done, you know, embraced the Lambic and Goose style, and Uh, He's done some dry hop beers of his, and and I picked this up uh, on some of his beers. He dry hopped with pellets and he dry hopped with whole cone. And the difference in the flavor and aroma that you got from those two products was different enough to me that when I looked at adding hops from a flavor and aroma standpoint in my brewery, I wanted to use whole cone. I think that... You know, pellets are. And Brandon
0: has actually made quite a few check loggers himself when yeah. he was working with yep.
1: uh, Four Noses and yep. Wild
0: Provisions
1: and, and yeah. designed
0: some of the, those beers. Yeah. He's not doing that anymore, but he was. And, yeah.
1: and they use all pellets. And I think that it, I mean, if you taste the Wild Provisions 12 degree versus our 12 degree, yeah. even though, you know, they're very similar in process, Brandon and I are very similarly minded about these things and have come to a lot of the same conclusions. So we're very similar, but the beers taste pretty different. And the hot profile is certainly one of them. So for me, you know, pellets are designed to get all of the oils out of the hops. And if you want to express all of a hop, every part of that hop, all of the oils, pellets are incredible. Whole cones do have limitations for extracting those oils. You have a more protected lupulin gland under the cone that is a little bit more difficult to suss out all of the things that that hop can provide. So in a more, uh, you know, nuanced beer that maybe doesn't have as aggressive of flavors, whole cones felt just like the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. Um, there is one famous brewery in Czech still using all whole cone. Budvar at this point is a hundred percent whole cone hopped brewery. Um, And again, I think you can taste it in their beer when you compare it to some of the newer breweries that have more intense hop flavors um, versus Budvar, which is much more soft. And um, I've even heard, uh, uh, people describe, you know, between Pilsner Kell and Budvar Pilsner Kell is the bitter one and Budvar is the sweet one. And that's <laughs> the, that's the big line, right? Yeah. It's true because Pilsner Kell is certainly extracting a lot more bitterness from uh, sure. the, the pellets sure. that they're, that they're using. So for us, we're using mostly saws. Um, you know, that's the premier Czech hop. It's the, uh, land race varietal. So it's the varietal that was just growing there wild. Right, right. Um, and they cultivated it and made a name for it. Um, but then we're using a couple other, uh, hops, especially, uh, getting into some new ones for, um, bittering purposes. So, uh, uh, Premiant is one that we've started using and then, uh, Sladek, um, they just talked about at CBC, they have like eight new varieties all named after the planets that I don't know anything about. <laughs> um, but yeah, they have, they have a, you know, pretty wide variety of hops and they have, you know, just like the U S brewing tradition, you have bittering hops, you have flavor hops, you have aroma hops, and they talk about, using them in different places. So we're starting to explore that more here and, um, you know, use different hops in different parts of the, of the boil. Um, Traditionally, from my understanding, it's basically you split the additions into thirds. Um, So if you have a 90 minute boil, you'd add a third at 90, a third at 60, a third at 30, and then nothing past that. Yeah. Um, We're definitely doing mostly that for some of our, like our core series, but then that's part of the exploration. Is then adding okay? Let's try a whirlpool hop. Let's try a zero minute, fifteen minute, and with one of these newer varietals that might have a lot of the size character, but a hint of uh, orange or a hint of lemon. You know, something a little more accented. Um, so still playing within those confines, but um, it, it, trying to emphasize those. More traditional flavors. Could
0: you say that to an American beer, like orange, you know, and, and <laughs> you instantly think big flavor. Right. And what right. you're talking about is very small expressions yes, of that flavor, exactly. very nuanced kind of echoes of it rather than uh, the thing itself. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's something that you kind of have to look for in the beer. And it's not, you know, it's not going to uh, assault your senses with orange. Um, it's it's going to be something that, oh, maybe. As you're into your 10th sip and the beer has warmed up a, <laughs> sure, a hair, sure. like, oh, there is something different there. Right. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think there's definitely we run the risk of having things taste pretty similar to a lot of consumers. But, um, you know, I, I think we try and find ways to talk about them or serve them differently or name them differently enough that it seems still still interesting to people. So, so what,
0: when you do or when you have been playing with whirlpool experience mm-hmm. uh, experiments, you know, what does
1: that look like? So that Walter was uh, one of the beers that we did a a Whirlpool Hop with, Um, and I think it.
0: This is a beer that I was uh, just drinking as we in the first part of this
1: podcast. So that was a collab with Hot Butcher for the World out of Chicago, and they're a predominantly IPA brewery. You know, hop forward. Um, We made some beers with them when I was at Odd Thirteen, and I I, I
0: sure I've heard of them before. (laughs) I don't; they sound familiar.
1: (laughs) And yeah, so they've they've done a ton of. I mean, Jude over there uh, is just such a. He's so in love with hops and the way he talks about them and and digs into them has been fascinating to me for a while. So when we collab with them, I said, I want to do more with hops because I love the way you talk about hops and work with them. Um so we brought in like three. In full disclosure there,
0: we did I did film a class with June oh, Jeremiah nice. <laughs> of Hop Butcher when
1: I was in Chicago a few weeks ago. Nice. And those
0: all access subscribers who have access to our video platform will get to watch them great. talking about <laughs> brewing and, and building hop blends and all of that. So
1: yeah. I am just joking about that with, with Hop Butcher. No, good folks. Good folks. Yeah, they're they're great. So it was it was fun, you know, kind of finding a way to add a layer of this noble hop experience that Normally, again, it's kind of balanced more with malt and sure. with the sweetness in the beer, but move it to the forefront a little bit. So it became just, uh, again, not not aggressive, not in your face and not, um, you know, a huge amount of flavor, but did have something that would very much distinguish it from our standard uh, 10 degree or 12 degree in terms of the hop flavor and aroma mm-hmm. even that you get. Um, so that's something that I, I definitely learned about at Odd 13 using heavy, heavy Whirlpool editions, sure, a lot of sure. Whirlpool only editions yeah. for for beers, uh, that you can get aroma from that too. And so that was, you know, a way to sort of accent that, uh, profile and create a a different beer with a little bit more restraint to it than, than maybe an IPA would have. Uh, sure. A little little bit, a little bit more restraint, restraint. (laughs) just a hair. Yeah. Sure, Sure. So it was, yeah, it's fun to, I think, you know, the, the saaz hop, it's interesting. They talk about that hop as a, an aroma hop in Czech and it's, they love the aromatics of that hop. Mm-hmm. Um, so we used a Polish hop Lubelski, which is, um, likely the land race hop varietal for Poland, um, probably was also saz or right. really similar. Um, but we wanted to see if we could really, uh, pull any differences out of it. So, but we, it's pretty much a, a saaz hop, uh, type that definitely gives more, you know, lemony, grassy, um, uh, herbal tea notes to the to the beer so yeah that was that was a fun one to experiment with and and try um you know as a a whirlpool hop but it doesn't it's it's nice because it honestly you know from a business perspective and a brewing perspective it doesn't take a lot to change the profile of this beer we i think we added um 11 pounds to a 15 barrel batch so i mean less than a pound per barrel of whirlpool which isn't a huge contribution especially for a you know, not notoriously intensely flavored hop. Sure, sure. Uh, but it low made, alpha,
0: low oil in general, yeah. But
1: it made a big difference in our right. beer, so that was that was a fun fun one to, to play with. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. And you don't dry hop any of these beers, or do you?
1: Uh, we've dry hopped. Maybe one of your experiments here or there. <laughs> Some of the collaborations we've we've dry hopped, so we just did um, a collab with Novel Strand Brewing, mm-hmm. and, and that one, uh, they're down in the Baker neighborhood, and that one got dry hopped um, with some New Zealand hops. If we're doing a collaboration, we kind of New Zealand hops and lager. Wow. Okay. (laughs) If we're doing collaborations, we kind of uh, blow the rules out a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Sure. sure. So we still, we still do, there's a few things that like for collaborations, like the coction I've said, you know, if we're collaborating with someone, we have to be decocting. Um, you know, we have to be making a lager there. There's some rules that we've still stuck to. Um, but if, if we work with someone who has an interest in a different area, we're, we're sort of open to ideas when we do collaborations and that's, part of the fun is is a you know spending time with friends and brewing with friends but then using what they're good at to kind of change up our beers a little bit and offer something that I mean honestly it's probably something people are more familiar with uh, uh, a beer like that but um I haven't dry hopped any of our lagers we did on my most recent trip I did find out that um sometimes they would add dry hops into like one of the very traditional breweries Mm -hmm. um they had a bag of uh, actually hop plugs, which is like the whole cones pressed into plugs, mm-hmm. sitting in a muslin bag outside the cellar. And I was like, "What? what is that? And they were like, and they had to confer amongst themselves because the guy who spoke English wasn't, wasn't the brewer. <laughs> yeah. So he starts talking in Czech and they're like, oh, it's hops. I'm like, okay, but where did you add those? Like, I didn't think, I didn't think you dry hopped anything. And he was like, yeah, it was in the lager tank. And I was like, so how long, like, is that all <laughs> the beer? And he's like, yeah. and he said, the guy said sometimes they just add hops wherever they want. And I was like, Okay. So, so, I mean, I think there are some examples of, of that, but that was new to me. Sure. Um, Sure. So I think we're, I mean, we're going to try that again. That's the nice thing about going and seeing this little detail that now I feel like that's something that I can bring back and do a very small dry hop of a noble hop and it fits into the tradition. So.
0: Sure. Sure. Now it's interesting to see if this, uh, you know, we, as we observe the canon appears limited (laughs) and is, the further that you develop that, and the more you dig in, the more that you see the kind of multiplicity that exists. <laughs> yeah. The more you realize that there's, you know, quote unquote reverence or, or tradition, um, you know, in a, a variety of approaches to these things.
1: So. And that's, I mean, honestly, it's one of the things I love about Czech lager. Is so you look at a pale lager, uh, Svetly Lejak, a twelve degree, mm-hmm. and that beer. I mean, I've had hundreds of different examples at this point, and they all taste different. Once you, yeah. once you do narrow your scope and look at it that closely. I mean, for them, the the style designation is color and strength. So it's pale, and it's between 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. 13.99 degrees Play-Doh. And outside of that, there's not really many rules yeah. to de- define a Svetli-Lajac. So you can add, I mean, there are people adding non-pilsner malts. There are people that are wildly bitter. There's people that are, you know, very sweet and very, almost caramely, almost right. to the color of an amber lager or a Vienna. but Somewhere they have quite a bit of diacetyl <laughs> in their beer too. Yeah, Yes, yeah, yeah. diacetyl, not diacetyl, <laughs> right, right? right? Like it's, it's such a wide range, yeah. and that's one of the things I love. And, you know, people ask me, do you care if other brewers, you know, make this style or steal your ideas? And I'm like, no, because they're not going to make the same thing. They're not focused on the same things. So
0: th- thinking about it from a creative perspective, you know, you had some of the you know, you have your, your kind of guardrails around this. Um, but from a creative perspective, did you have an idea of the flavor that you wanted it to be? Or was it, or did that process evolve as you were tasting the ingredients, working on the ingredients? I mean, you know, there's two ways to go about that, right? You can you know, be driven by how things are and riff on that and go with it. Or you can work in an exacting way to try to realize this idea for something that you have in your head. Mm-hmm. How, from from a creative perspective, how did that work for you? Or is this some combination of these things?
1: Um, I would say it was probably a combination. Like we, so when we were selecting the malt with Troubadour, we did a number of hot steeps, which is a malt sensory technique, essentially like steeping coffee. Sure. Or, or a pour over coffee, right? Um, And so we did hot steeps on a variety of malts, both theirs and um, some Czech malts and said like, okay, this is the flavor profile we're at with this malt that you wanted us to develop. Let's compare it to, uh, you know, German malts, Czech malts, American malts, uh, all in this Pilsner style. Do you like this where it's at? And yeah, okay, this is I like where this is at. Let's move forward with that. Um, you know, sauce hops were certainly familiar to me from uh, other other places I'd brewed and and other All beers good. I'd had, so I kind of knew what that would lend. And then from there, it was kind of like, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get out of this what we get out of it. Right. Um, and it was um, more about trusting the tradition and the process, and just sort of, you know, I I kind of jumped into it a little bit yeah. blindly. I mean, I didn't I had an idea of what it would taste like, and I knew the Range I wanted it to be in, but again, the styles in check it's a color and a strength, and that's it. so what it tasted like outside of that color and that strength was was our character that that was what it came to be. so I kind of let that part develop on its own once we it was more about sticking to the ways that we wanted to make it and knowing that that would get us to the end goal of it tasting traditional and I mean the biggest compliments that we've gotten here from my perspective at cohesion is when a, a check citizen or someone who's moved here from the Czech Republic comes in and says, this beer tastes like home. And that's, if if I'm, if I'm (laughs) doing that, like, I I don't really care about much else in terms of, uh, you know, critiques on the beer or, or what people say nice about it. It's like, that's, that's what I'm trying to create here. And to have gotten that feedback is really, really what we are striving for. So that, that was the end goal, not what I want it to taste like. It's does it represent the culture authentically? Sure. Sure. Um,
0: if, as we zoom out, what's the, uh, what's the big picture in the long term look like for cohesion? What do you all hope to achieve here? What success look like? And, and yeah. when will you know that you've achieved it?
1: Yeah, I think for us it's, it's, I, I like that question. You know, what does success look since, like? Since
0: starting a brewery was not
1: your wife's goal and, uh, <laughs> you somehow, uh, you know, baited and switched on that. That's right. Um, we, we talk about, we've talked about that as we built the brewery and you know, what does success look like? And for me, it's, um, you know, Making good beer, creating good jobs, and supporting our community, and that's what success looks like for Cohesion as a business. And if we're doing all of those things, and we find ourselves, you know, tripping over our own successes, then yeah. maybe we would do this again somewhere else, right? But that's um, that's what success looks like for for me and for us. Um, and we have a lot of different ways to measure that, but that's kind of where we want to end up. So I think, you know, continuing to explore the traditions of Czech lager and representing it um, in a way that Czech people feel like it does represent their culture is is hugely important to us. So continuing to learn, um, and continuing to educate ourselves. I'm, I have no Czech heritage myself. I'm not connected to that culture other than I visited in 2018 and really just fell in love with the beer styles. So um, we're going to continue to explore Czech lager. I, I really enjoy collaborating with other people because it does it pushes them sometimes. And like a lot of people I talk to like, Oh, let's make a beer together. I'm like, yeah, I, I love you. I love your brewery, but can you do a decoction? And they'll say no. And I'm like, okay, then we can't, I can't do this. Right. And then that starts a conversation. Well, why not? Like, and it, and educating people about that is I I love talking about beer and educating people on beer cultures and styles. And so it's just trying to do more of that. Like the tours are a big piece of it. Um, Finding ways to bring in Czech food is big for us. We're, Working on that, it's difficult. There's not a lot of it here. Uh, there's not a lot of people that want to make it here or even know what it is. Um, so we've tried to do one or two beer dinners, but um, yeah, just finding ways to really uh, represent the, the culture authentically is kind of where we're headed and deepening the production of, so the 10, the 12 and the Tamavi are kind of our core styles and just making those a good representation of what that a beer would taste like in that style in the Czech Republic.
0: Well, you've certainly added to the richness of the Denver beer culture, and what an amazing town... I live about an hour away, and uh, in Fort Collins, and so it's fantastic to be able to come down here yeah. and uh, you know get our German style lagers, at Bierstadt, slow poured or Helles. Yeah, uh, yeah, I might be on Team Helles <laughs> more than Team Slow pour on that yeah. one. And, uh, come get our check, our check lagers now at uh, Cohesion. In fact, after Collab Fest in April, I popped over here because it wasn't too far away on my yeah. way back, and uh, ran into to Brandon from our mutual friend and had yeah, a, yeah. a couple of beers with him, and his wife. And, uh, yeah, it's just a nice spot for, you know, it's the kind of spot the brewers want to hang out in yeah. because, uh, these are the beers that <laughs> they want to be drinking they for want sure to be drinking for sure. Well, that's a good place to bring this to a close G G&D micro G and D's micro channel condensers. use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers explore a whole universe of hop sensory with BSG old orchard get your craft concentrates on time arrived mobile point of sale powers, places with personality, and put SS Brutex Advances to work in your brew house. If you enjoy this podcast this each week, of course we'd love your support, if you couldn't tell from my shamelessly promoting all <laughs> of the things that come with our various subscriptions throughout this process. Subscriptions give you access to subscriber-exclusive content, make it possible for us to bring you this podcast each week. If you're planning a brewery, go on over to breweryworkshop.com for information on our next workshop in Portland, Oregon this July. It's a killer lineup. World-class brewers and brewery business specialists will help you discover what you didn't know. You didn't know, Eric. If people want to learn more about Cohesion and the Czech-style lagers that you brew, where do they find you?
1: Yeah, we're on uh, social media at Cohesion Beer. Um, websites CohesionBeer.com, and then the best way is to stop by. We're in the the Clayton neighborhood of Denver, just a hair outside of Rhino. Not not too far a drive if you're visiting Beerstadt. Um, or you're coming to denver um it's yeah less than 10 minute uber that's right yeah to come come to the tap room and you know experience the check pours which we didn't even get into and it all the, yeah. the pouring the pouring styles and uh you know we we have a saying here that foam is beautiful so we want to kind of show people that and, and have people check that out so yeah uh we're in the york street yards development which uh hopefully we'll have some more restaurants and food options pretty soon too so
0: well thanks for joining me on the podcast here yeah. cheers Oh, thank you